We've got a couple of announcements. Uh, the first announcement is that uh, probably all of you have a lot of leftover candy from uh, trick-or-treat on Sunday night, and um, you probably don't want to have to eat all of it or let your grandchildren or children eat all of it. So uh, there's an organization called Soldiers, Angels, Treats for Troops that are collecting leftover candy from Halloween to send to our troops. And so there are a couple of orange uh, treats for troops boxes in the fellowship area. And if you will put them there, they'll be out there for a little while. And so you can take the candy that you're going to get rid of so you can diet between now and Thanksgiving and then Christmas, right? Got a lot of laughs on that. Okay, the second announcement is to remember, I know that's a challenge for some of us, to remember to set your clocks back one hour, fall back, spring forward, so it's that time again, and daylight savings time shifts Sunday morning at 2 a.m., so before you go to bed, try to figure out what your phone's going to do and what your watch is going to do and all of these other devices that automatically do something, and we're never sure if they will or won't. But So if we're going to turn our watches, there'll be a few people early for church Sunday morning. That, that always happens. Then in the spring, you have people show up while everybody's leaving. All right, cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In these days, we need to remember those promises that... God, is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we need to just relax and laugh, develop our sense of humor about all of the craziness that's going on because the battle is the Lord's. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started this evening, and uh, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to. We're grateful that we have so much about you revealed to us in your word. And as we study these battles, like we see in the episode this evening, it is a reminder to us that we face spiritual battles every day, several times every day, and the battle is always yours. And if you're on our side, we know that nothing can defeat us and that we do not need to follow the path of Barak, who was a weak in faith in trusting you, and we need to trust in you because you are our God. You are the God of battles. You are the God who is our fortress and our rock and our foundation, and you are our shield and our bulwark and our fortress. Father, we pray that we might trust in you. We pray tonight that no matter how this election turns out in Virginia, that we will trust in you because we know that ultimately what really needs to be resolved to solve the issues in our culture is for people to turn to you and turn to the scriptures and not just to turn to politics because a political solution is a necessary but also a secondary solution. And the primary solution is spiritual. So, Father, we pray that as we study this tonight, we might be strengthened in our faith. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, and tonight we're going to learn about the Ibex getting the hammer. You know, at the beginning we talked about the bee, and then we talked about the lightning. The B is Deborah, the lightning is Barak, and now tonight we're going to learn about the Ibex and how she ties the story together, or as some might say, she nails it. All right, so we have 
the three parts that we talk about, the introduction, this is the cycles that are going on in Israel, and we see these same similar types of cycles going on in almost every culture. However, there are many that are just in permanent apostasy. They have given in to uh, pantheism. They have given in to uh, various forms of idolatry and animism and spiritism. And there are many that, have, that worship at the idol of modern man and education and science. And it's nothing more than idolatry. Nothing can solve man's problem except for God. And that is what this nation has failed to learn. And it's been failing to learn that for about 200 years. It's been gradually coming on decade after decade after decade. And we're now at a point where uh, our chickens are coming home to roost, as it were. We're seeing the consequences of what human viewpoint does uh, to a culture. And it's not just here. What's amazing, because I hear people say, what in the world has happened to, where are all the people in America uh, who should be working who aren't working? Well, it's not an America problem, folks. The whole world, you talk about any, come up with almost any country in the world, and they've got a worker problem. Now, it's not every single country, but it's more than an American problem. It is, you know, this is the kind of thing that makes people really wonder if the Lord's not coming back pretty soon because we've never seen this kind of, of a dysfunctional world in a long time. Uh, world War II was uh, extremely horrific, and it was a different kind of a problem. But it always goes back to a spiritual problem, and the only solution is going to be the spiritual solution. And so we see this time and time again, and Israel never learns. And how many times do we sit there and go, I just can't believe that these people who have seen God intervene so many times from the parting of the Red Sea to provision of manna all the way through the wilderness. Uh, For 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't fall apart, they didn't have any problems, and then gave them a remarkable victory over the Canaanites at Jericho. They didn't follow God's instructions at Ai, so they they, uh, had one member who didn't follow orders, and he took some plunder and hid it under his tent. And so at the next battle, they had several thousand that were killed until they dealt with the sin that was in the camp. And again and again, you just see this same failure to trust God. And we sit back and we think, how could they do that? They, they saw those miracles, and they were just a generation or two from them. And yet, when you look at a passage like the uh, rich, not the rich young ruler, the passage about the rich man and Lazarus, and when the rich man is in torments, he begs that um, Father Abraham, that, that Lazarus can go back and tell his brothers about, um, about what's going to happen to them. And Abraham says, if they won't believe the scripture, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, it doesn't matter what other kind of evidence you present because the scripture is self-authenticating. When any human being hears the scripture, whether they like it or not, whether they'll admit it or not, they're hearing the word of God and they know it in the bowels of their soul. And that's why Abraham could say, if they won't believe Abraham and the prophets, they won't believe miracles, they won't believe all of these uh, healings, they won't believe, they they didn't believe all of the miracles Jesus did. And none of us are ever going to present the gospel as clearly as Jesus. None of us are going to have the authenticating miracles that Jesus had. But we have the word of God. And you don't need to have the authenticating miracles, and you don't have to have um, the, the various evidences that were in Christ's life in order to convince people of the truth of God's Word, because that's not our job. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't understand basic answers to people's questions, that we get rid of 
1 Peter 3, 15, that we're to give an answer for the hope that is in us. But it means that our our job is to explain Scripture, but it's not to convince people of the truth. That's the role of God the Holy Spirit. And our job is to give him the information, to put the information out there that people will grab hold of. But we live in a world today where there is hardened negative volition that has resisted and has rejected the evidence of God's word that is all around them through the nonverbal revelation of general revelation and through the specifics of special revelation. And they have turned away from him. And that's what happened. The, the Old Testament is just one episode after another, just about, of the Jewish people rejecting God's revelation and doing it their own way. And that, that's the pattern. And so this is what happens to the leaders, and it happens to the priests, and it happens uh, to the people. And the result is this cycle of disobedience and discipline. And then God graciously delivers whether there was a genuine turning to him or not. And it just continues. Now tonight we're going to have some fun because we're going to be looking at a lot of maps. So I know there are people who just, they look, like I look at a quadratic equation and my eyes turn back into my head. There are people who look at a map and their eyes roll back into their head, and they just can't orient to a map at all. But if you see it enough, you'll get it. So most maps, although I have one here that is not oriented this way, most maps are oriented so north is up and south is down, and west is to the left and east is to the right. And so this is the land of Israel, and actually where they have this trunk highway these lines running here, that is just about, if you notice, it's just at the edge. All this gray area, these are the mountains, the hill country. And this is at the edge of the hill country. That is where the green line is. When they had an armistice at the end of the uh, Israeli War for Independence in, in 1948, and they talk about the, the boundaries, and you have the West Bank, between the West Bank and Israel, and you have that big bulge, and they call it the Green Line. Do you know why they call it the Green Line? Because the guy who drew it on a map had a green pencil. It's, just, it's real simple. But anyway, so the, if you get over in this area here, where, where my uh, pencil is just to the west where it says Samaria, if, right in here, is where that green line boundary is. And the reason the Jews don't want to give up this this high country that they have here is because this goes up about 1,500 feet or more above the the, uh, Shephelah, the plain, the coastal plain down here. And the distance from, let's say, this green line, how convenient... This green line right here in the middle of these various lines marking these roads, if the, the distance from that green line to the water is how far? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Nine miles. That's not very far. That's like, uh, that's further, that's not as far as, no, that's nine miles is less than the distance from here to downtown. Downtown just maybe 11 or 12 miles. But that's, that's a very narrow area. And if you've got artillery up here on this ridge line, which is what would happen if the West Bank was given over to the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Jordanians, then they would control, uh, be, would be able to control with all their artillery tanks and all manner of weapons, the, everything from up in this area here, which is um, where Haifa is located, all the way down here to Tel Aviv, where about 60 to 70% of the Israeli population lives and where about 70% of their, uh, their industry and their tech industry exists. And it could all be obliterated in just a very short time if they lost the high ground. 
And the high ground is going to be part of our message tonight because that's important. So as we've looked at the comparison of the two previous um, cycles, we saw that all three of these cycles now have one verse describing the disobedience and departure from their devotion to Yahweh. And then there is two verses in each of them, each of the three, two verses uh, describing the discipline from the Lord. And then there's just a few verses in the first one, a few more in the second one, and now 21 verses in this one describing the deliverance by grace. So the emphasis here under the law of proportion, which is one of the things you look for when you're observing the text, if there is proportionality, and if God spends a whole lot of time talking about one thing, then it's important to pay attention. And as a matter of fact, once we get into the whole setup and the setting, which is what we've been going through in the first seven verses so far, that once you get into the battle, all of a sudden when we come to verse 17, when Sisera has to flee the battlefield on foot, that the action is going to slow down. And one of the things you ought to ask is, why does the Holy Spirit slow things down in describing what's going on here? Because he wants us to, uh, I'm going to say it anyway, pardon the pun, get the point. Okay? So, just by way of review, Ehud, after Ehud died, the children of Israel again went back to their vomit like a dog And they again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Yavin, the king of Canaan. And these are really city-states. They're not like nations. They're city-states. The king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagoyim. And I've got a good map that's going to show you that's location. So remember this, that's Sisera's hometown because he's going to, I mean, the battle's going to go that in that direction or the troops are going to flee that way. He goes the other way uh, because he knows that he can't make it home and he's going to hide out. So the Israelites have done evil. Now, the key areas in the geography are up here you have Hatzor, which is the seat of Yavin's power, but he's got alliances with all these different uh, Canaanite towns around here, and so he's got this coalition of kings in the north, so he's going to be able to put quite an army in the field, and he has 900 chariots, and they have iron wheels, so the they, they're not going to do very good up here in this hilly country, but they're going to do great down in this huge... Uh, Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Megiddo, uh, which is where this battle is going to take place. And then this is the Sea of Galilee. And so we're going to be looking at several places around here in just a minute. So the Lord uh, sells them into the hand of Yavin. And then in verse 3, the children of Israel cried to the Lord. For Yavin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So they, if you think about, and I understand from an email from one of our folks who lives in um, in Sydney that they've lightened up in Australia and they're able to get out and go visit people and do things and they've allowed foreign travelers to come in and a lot of the, uh, can you imagine if you were an Australian and you left 18 months ago, you weren't allowed to come home. And so they're allowed to come home. All of these things have now opened up. But this is 20 years of a quarantine lockdown, basically. And it was miserable, and they were under the uh, tyranny of Yavin. So again, here's another map. This one is showing the uh, tribal areas up here. And the main one is going to be Naphtali, that Barak is uh, from Naphtali, uh, Hatzor is in the middle of this tribal area that was given to Naphtali. The battle is going to be down here, and you have a village here called uh, Dabarath. Guess what that's named after? That's for Deborah, and that's right on the side of Mount Tavor. And then here you, in the red you have Issachar, and right on the border between Issachar, right where these three tribes come together, right there is where Mount Tavor is located. 
And this line running this way is roughly the location of the Kishon River running just below the Carmel Ridge and below Megiddo. So this gives us our, our look at this geography. Deborah is exercising her authority as a prophet down in this, this southern area in the hill country of Samaria, and she is down there between uh, Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And so she, she's going to be coming north. Barak's going to be coming up from this Kadesh up here. We'll talk about that again uh, in just a, just a minute. So we were told that Deborah, Devorah, was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidote. She's going to speak for God primarily, I think, with her. This had to do with music. We see that in, in Judges 5. We went through this in detail in the previous lessons. But she also would give a message from God, and that's what I pointed out that they're asking in Judges 4, 5, that when the sons of Israel, not children of Israel, but the sons of Israel came up to her, that term is used of, a, uh, of the whole nation. This is a, a national enclave. They're going to meet with her, or conclave rather, they're going to meet with her uh, for a word from the Lord as to what are we going to do about Sisera. He's the problem. And so her judging isn't like a judge, a magistrate in a court. It has to do with providing leadership uh, for Israel because there's no man who can do it. And we'll talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. So she sat under the palm tree there, and Israel would come for a word. So what's her response Instead of giving them a message, she acts. She sends and calls for Barak, the son of Obinoam, uh, from Kadesh in Barnea. So we are told basically three things here about um, what she does and about Barak. We're, first of all, we're told about his name, which means um, lightning. Second, we're given his patronymic, which is who his father is, his father's name. He is the son of Obinoam, which means father is pleasant. And he is from Kadesh in Naphtali. Now, the word Kadesh, the, it shouldn't be a K, it should be a Q. But it is uh, that hard guttural sound, K-D-S-H or Q-D-S-H. And the Hebrew word kadash is one that is very familiar to you. I've talked to you about, about this a lot. Uh, the noun is kadosh and the verb is kadash and it means to be set apart or to be sanctified or to be uh, in service of God. And the noun would refer to a sanctuary. So this was a very popular name to attach to various different cities. And so there are a lot of different cities that would be named Kedesh. And so you have Kedesh in Naphtali, and so we have to identify that. And he's from um, Kedesh in Naphtali, and she says to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Now when you phrase it like that, she doesn't say, Thus says the Lord, go do this. She's does it a little more craftily. She asks it, ask it in a form that expects a yes answer. Yes, he has. But by asking the question, it causes a person to think, well, well, has God really said this? And, of course, that may bring to your mind the tests for a prophet that are in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. And perhaps some of this went through Barak's mind and she says, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? And of course, he'd be thinking, well, yes, he has. And says, go and deploy troops at Mount Tavor. So that's going to describe his mission, that he has to go and deploy troops. And the location is going to be Mount Tavor. So God is very specific 
about giving the guidance here. And God gave specific guidance like that at many, many times in the history of Israel, but not to just everybody, but mostly to leaders and prophets in relation to their role as a leader in his kingdom where he's the king. So they are to go and they are to deploy troops at Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. Now, the word translated deploy is this word over here on the right under the picture of lightning, and that um, means to pull something, to draw something or drag it, and it's used in military concept uh, context for drawing a bow or for the deployment of troops. And that's the way it's used in this particular passage. It's not only used in this verse, but it's going to be used in the next verse, which is very important to note. So first of all, I just want to say something about the location here. In this map, which is a Lagos map, that most of my maps come out of Lagos. I've got some tonight from some other sources. They identify this Kedesh as the one that is located up by Lake Hula, and Lake Hula is dried out now, so none of you have ever seen it when you've gone to Israel. If you thought, well, when you're driving up to Tel Dan, why didn't we see any water off to our left? Because it's all been used for irrigation, and it doesn't exist anymore. Here's Hatzor. So Barak is from um, Yavin's neighborhood. He knows this terrain. Now, there is another hot sword down here just to the southeast of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, which probably isn't very far from that place where we used to go to have baptisms. Uh, Two or three trips back, I decided to just uh, stay at a hotel up on the Sea of Galilee and at night go down to the little beach there and do the baptisms there. And it's much nicer than all of the sort of ritualistic stuff there at the uh, at that other location, but that other location is very close to uh, what would what is called um, uh, uh, Kerbet Kedish, and that is where the, many people locate this. And I saw a bunch of maps, and they all put this Kedish as down here. But this one makes a lot more sense, and a large number of scholars say that this uh, Kedesh in the north is called Tel Kadesh in Upper Galilee, and that that's the one that is mentioned in Joshua 12.22, and it's later set aside as a city of refuge in Joshua 20, verse 7, and as a Levitical city in Joshua 21.32. And so this is a significant location uh, from which Barak comes, and it is his father's father's city. And so this seems to be uh, one, might be one reason that he's chosen is because he would have a more intimate knowledge of the enemy. And this is when, uh, let me see, I'm going to give you one other map here. This shows the difference. Up here you have uh, Kedesh which is the second one, the Tel Kadesh. And then this one down here to the south is Kadesh Naphtali. And so there is debate in the literature which one it might be, but it's more than likely the one up here, uh, up here in the north. And so she reminds him about what God has said. And, oh, also, I have another picture here. This is what the terrain is like at Tel Kadesh. And in the distance here is Mount Hermon. So this is the tallest peak, and you can go skiing. Next time you want to take a skiing vacation, you can go to Israel and ski Mount Hermon. And you can look on the other side, and you can see into Syria. And on a clear day, you could probably see Damascus. But this is uh, the location of Tel Kadesh. So at this point... um, the next geographical feature we're going to look at is Mount Tavor. So at this point, um, Deborah gives his orders in Judges 4-7 and says, and uh, against you, God says, and I think may have gotten this slide out of place. I, I did. And against you, I, God is speaking. So Yahweh is saying, against you, 
I will deploy Sisera. Now that's the same word that was used in verse 6. And so um, what Deborah is telling him is you go deploy your troops and put them into battle order and Yahweh is going to be the one who's going to deploy Sisera and his troops. And even though Sisera is going to make all of the decisions into how their troops are laid out, it's really God that is directing the situation. Uh, so God is in control. That's why we can say that whatever the battle is, the battle needs to be the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And so um, that's her. this is a promise that is made from, from the Lord through Deborah to Barak. She says, you go, this is the order. The first thing is you're going to deploy troops. 10,000 troops to Mount Tavor. It rises 1,843 feet above sea level. It's very steep, and it overlooks one of the most important crossroads uh, in the Middle East. And it's on the north side of the valley of, of Jezreel, uh, where all this traffic goes along this highway. And on the south side, opposite it, is Megiddo, which is one of the fortified cities that Solomon fortified and also had his chariot corps uh, established there. And the second aspect of what she says is a promise. Go and deploy. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of of Naphtali. And the second part in verse 7 says, and against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Yavin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. This is a clear promise. It's not a promise to anybody else. It's only a promise to Barak. And it is a clear promise. In the Bible, there are a lot of different promises, and a lot of promises that people claim don't have any business claiming because they're reading somebody else's mail. God made promises to Abraham. They're not for anybody else. God made, Christ actually made a promise to his disciples, and the same kind of setup. He said, stay in Jerusalem and not many days from now, the Holy Spirit will come. So those are the, 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 the orders to stay in Jerusalem. And the promise was, in not many days, the Holy Spirit would come. But you have a lot of people, especially in the Pentecostal tradition, who think that they have to tarry, because that's how the King James translated stay. They have to stay and wait and wait on the Lord until finally, when they're exhausted and worn out and they're in a hit, you know, hypnotic trance, then the Holy Spirit will come on them. And they're taking a statement and a promise made to only those disciples for only that period of time. And so we always have to make sure, is this promise in the scripture a promise that is directed to me or is it directed to somebody else? And how do I claim it? And there are some promises, there's a number of promises we, we claim, but they reflect universal principles like, Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee in the right hand of my righteousness. And that is a promise God was giving to Israel in a specific situation. But it has a universal application for every single one of us. So we can take that and we can relate it to our own circumstances. And there are other uh, promises. We're to cast our care upon him because he cares for you in First uh, Peter 5, 7. And that is directed to any and all believers, not just those who received uh, Peter's epistle. So this is a promise that is given to uh, to uh, Barak, and it's his responsibility to take that promise and to mix it with faith and to use the faith rest drill. Now, here's another point about the faith rest drill here. Sometimes people get the idea that because it's faith rest that they don't do anything. And it all depends on what you, what you mean by do. Okay. If you think do means doing something that's going to meritoriously affect God doing something, then no, it doesn't involve you doing anything to somehow light the fuse for God. But we are supposed to do a lot of things in many 
situations. We are to do what God says to do. When David went out on the field to fight Goliath, and he knew that the battle was the Lord's, but he wasn't just going to sit there with his hands folded in prayer and hope that somehow God would strike Goliath with lightning. In the situation with, speaking of lightning, in the situation with Elijah on Mount Carmel, Elijah had to issue the challenge. He had to, after the uh, priests of Baal and the Asherah had done all of their things they could to get Baal to light the fire, he had to uh, give directions to build the altar, oversee the building of the altar, the uh, and the uh, sacrifice of the animal, putting it on the altar, and then he prayed to God. He didn't just sit there with his hands folded. There were He had certain things he had to do, but they weren't trying to solve the problem. He was doing what he needed to do and to set the stage, and then God would solve the problem. And that's what's going on here with Barak. Barak is not going to sit back and say, okay, well, God's just going to somehow send a bolt of lightning down and take out uh, Sisera and then Yavin. I have to muster 10,000 troops and go to Mount Tabor, and, and actually he goes to the top of Mount Tabor. He takes all the troops up there, and he takes the high ground so that he can see, and on a clear day there, you can see uh, for miles and miles up and down that valley. And you can see all the troops moving around. So they were up there. And the reason I say that is a little later on in verse 14, it says, so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So he had all of his troops on top of that uh, small uh, small mountain. And we'll look at some pictures of that in just a minute. And God says, I'm directing the battle. I'm going to direct your enemy forces against you. And uh, they are going to be at the river Kishon, and I will deliver you. Now, that's a good rendering in English. The word in, in Hebrew is Natan, which means to give. And you hear it in the name Jonathan. Yah at the beginning is Yahweh, God, and Natan is from this word to give. Yahweh gives. That's what Jonathan means. And so God says, I will uh, give him into your hand. Or I will, you can put it into English idiom a little better with, I will deliver him into your hand or I will put him into your hand. And that makes the issue very, very, very clear. So he is directed uh, Barak is directed to take his troops to Mount Tavor. So let me give you a couple of pictures here that I ran across that I've got. This is Mount Tavor. I told you it's a very unusual-looking mountain, very obvious mountain. It's uh, uh, 1,200 or excuse me, 1,843 feet high. Here is an aerial photo depicting the road that you have to go up and. That's one reason I've never wanted to take a bus up there when we've been in Israel. And there is a monastery there at the top now. And this is another aerial view, and you're looking from the northwest. So it's like you're just north of Haifa, and you're looking down. And Mount Tavor is, the valley is just on the other side of the Hill of Mora. The Hill of Mora is where uh, Gideon is going to fight in the next chapter. So we'll be back to this same visual again. And the yellow line here shows the boundary line. So Mount Tavor is right on the border of the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Zebulun, and the tribe of Naphtali. And so Barak musters his troops, takes them up to the top, and he has a clear view of this whole whole valley. And I don't see it in this particular picture, but when you're on the other side and you're up on the Mount Carmel Ridge, you see the two um, airstrips, two landing strips, and that's there's an underground uh, IAF, Israeli Air Force base there. It's all all underground. So that gives you the visual. So in verse eight, we see a breakdown in Barak's faith rest drill. He's not a weak or a wimp 
because he is inherent he inherently lacks courage but he is weak and a wimp spiritually because he doesn't say well god said it that settles it and i believe it let's go to go to mount tavor he he says well why don't you go with me you're the voice of god and it would be good to have you at my side and i don't think i'm going to go do this unless i have you with me that will give me confidence that i'm doing god's will so he lacks faith he fails in his test of the uh, of the faith rest drill so uh she says to him well in light of this see there are consequences sometimes to our bad decisions and she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. You're not going to get the credit for this victory. You're not going to get any glory for this, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, of course, if you're reading this at this stage, you think this is Deborah that's, that, he's, that she's talking about. But it's not. In fact, we don't hear much from Deborah after this. The next chapter is when they write this uh, hymn in praise to what, the, what God has given them in the victory. So Deborah rose, went with Barak to Kedesh, and we're reminded that he did have faith. He just wasn't operating, operating on it at that particular moment. But afterward, he did operate on faith. And this is what one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because these guys are, we know from studying, they've made a lot of mistakes. They, they didn't know much scripture, and they failed badly in many ways in terms of their own spiritual lives. But God puts them in this list of great faith heroes in Hebrews 11. And the writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And we know Samson's just horrible. And Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. They had faith. Now on the Canaanite side, we switch the scene here in Judges 4.12 and verse 13. And they, that would be his spies, his guys he's got out doing a reconnaissance. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tavor. So Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. So that's the second time we've heard that. So that's to make sure we understand what the odds were. And all the people who were with him from Harasheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. So they're going to be basically coming in from the west to southwest across the... Uh, Valley of Jezreel. We'll see a, a, a map in just a minute. Then Deborah said to Barak, so the scene shifts back over to the Israelite side, and Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? Now, what do you think the answer to that question is? Yes. So once again, by asking a question, you get people to think about the answer and what's going on. So then we learn Barak went down, which means he had to have gone up to the top, up that 1,843 feet. It's just the last three feet that's tough. To go down from Mount Tavor with 10,000 men following him. And then we see something interesting here. And the Lord routed Sisera. It's not Barak. It's not the 10,000 men. You know, he reminds me, he reminds me a lot about Gideon because Gideon really isn't all on board with trusting the Lord either. And God's going to show him that he can win the battle when he makes the odds even impossible because nothing is impossible with God to overcome. So the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. So they did engage in battle, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now there's a lot that's going on here that's not 
made clear in that particular verse. And we don't get it explained until we get to the next chapter. And I'll get to that verse in just a minute, but I want to finish up with this and then come back and talk about this word, hamam, hamam. And this is a word that is translated as routed, but it has the idea of making a noise, but it's not just the idea of going out and making a noise, but making such a racket that it confuses people, it distracts people from whatever they're doing. And it has that idea of confu- bringing about confusion or creating a panic or crushing or destroying an enemy. So you'd create the panic to destroy the enemy. So it comes to mean uh, both one end of the process as well as the other end of the process. And so then we're told uh, on the Israeli side, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Agoyim and all of the army, notice this, all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. And I think we have, maybe in verse 15, we also have two uses of all. All his chariots, and they routed Sisera, and all his chariots, and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. But Sisera, they get wiped out, but Sisera flees on foot. And so now again we're told all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Just in case you don't understand the word all. Now I'm not using a Texas accent. I don't mean oil. I mean all. Just in case you don't know what all means, God makes it clear that not a man was left. It is a complete true massacre. They are all killed except Sisera gets away on foot. And we'll look at this. This summarizes the action. He has a little ways to go. He has to decide, am I going to go home to Harasheth Hagoyim, or am I going to go to Yavin? And he sees that the battle has moved to his south, and if he goes that way, he's going to get involved and have to cross the Israelite army. And so he heads to the north northeast. And he just is worn out, and he sees the tent of Yael, who is the wife of Heber the Kenite. Now, the Kenites were a group that had separated off from the Midianites. For whatever reason, uh, this Heber had moved his clan up to the area around the Galilee, and he is has been in alliance with Yavin. It says here, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was shalom. That's the Hebrew word here. There was shalom. It's more than just the fact that there's an absence of, of um, opposition and antagonism between them. It is they have a very solid, healthy relationship. Shalom has that idea of not only peace, so you be tranquil, but health. And everything is really going well for you. So uh, there's, there's peace. There, there, there's a strong alliance between Yavin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite, which means Sisera is going to think, oh, I'm home free here. Because when I get there, I've got somebody who can watch over me. I'm in a safe, secure area, and, and I'm going to be taken care of. Now, these chariots we've been talking about, I don't want you to get the idea that these are those powerful, strong chariots that Charlton Heston was driving in Ben-Hur. This is what they look like. Now, this isn't a Canaanite chariot. This is actually the chariot of Tutankhamun, uh, which was found in in his tomb in the Valley of the Kings. But you can see it's not doesn't appear to be the strongest and the most protected type of chariot. Now, maybe a military chariot that would go into battle would have more armor on it. Maybe this was just a uh, more of a uh, formal chariot. But you see there are these openings here where someone, you'd have a driver and you would have an archer, and that they could shoot. Or if somebody was trying to get close, they could stab through that, that opening. 
So here is another uh, picture of that. Uh, and this is on uh, display there uh, in the, um, I forget the museum there in, in uh, Cairo. And then here is an inscription uh, at an Assyrian relief showing chariots and horses. You know, that image up there on the screen here in this auditorium is better than the one on my laptop. Just so you know that. I can see everything much more clearly there than I can on my laptop. And, and I don't know what happened last week, but several of these pictures were really dark and hard to see. I don't know how that happened on the video, but hopefully we can, won't have that problem anymore. Um, so chariots were the light armor of the ancient world. And then the next day, what we see is... Um, what the result, it came to pass in the morning watch. Oh, I know what I'm doing here. Excuse me. We go back to our word here, dealing with routed. Let's see how that's used in other passages, okay? So after we get past the chariots, we go back to the time of the Exodus event. And it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he routed the army of the Egyptians. So it has this idea that he just sends complete confusion on them. He messes with their minds in a way only God can do, and he brings confusion on them. This is how God intervenes for us and how he intervened for Israel is he just clouds their thinking. And they get completely confused and go into a panic and, and flee. In Exodus twenty three twenty seven, 27, uh, uh, God says, I will send my fear before you. The fear of the Lord is used as almost a title for the pre-incarnate Christ who's leading them through the wilderness. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion, same word. I will rout or I will call, create a panic and crush the people uh, to whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. That means they're running away from you. Deuteronomy 2.15. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them. Now who are the them in De Deuteronomy 2? He's reminding, Moses is reminding the, uh, the Israelites, the next generation, the children of the Exodus generation who are about to go into the land of how their parents really messed up and had to go through 38 years of discipline in the, in the wilderness. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them, that is your father's generation because of their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea. The hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. Both words that I under, underlined, destroy and consumed, are this word. So it has a range of meanings, but it's repeated here because God was confusing them in order to destroy that generation because of their sin. In Joshua 10.10, talking about the uh, battle with the, uh, at Gibeon. So the Lord routed them. The Lord brought confusion, killed them in a great slaughter. So that adds more specificity to the word Hamam and chased them along the road that goes uh, to Beth Haron and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. So this was a, they were cleaning up operation after the battle. 1 Samuel 7.10 as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. This is the word routed, translated confused. And then at the end of 2 Samuel, if you remember, there's this great uh, praise hymn that David writes. It's restated in Psalm 18. And here it says, the Lord thundered from heaven 
and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Now, the imagery here is, is quite dramatic and could be hyperbolic to some degree, but the basic is, is, is accurate. That God shows that God uses the forces of nature to bring judgment upon human beings. And we see it in spades when we get to the tribulation period. You look at what happens in the judgments of the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, how God uses uh, the planets, how he uses um, the meteors, how he uses the sun and the moon and earthquakes and all of these other things to bring judgment on people to destroy them during the tribulation period. All right, here we have a map where we look at the initial stages of the battle between Sisera and Barak. Just so you have your basic orientation, uh, the Jezreel Valley runs diagonally here. It runs from northwest to southeast, and you have this highway that goes through the Megiddo Pass here. We've, if you've been to Israel with me, several of you have, we go through that uh, area on, in, the, in the bus. This is where the highway runs today. Goes by Megiddo. We always go to Megiddo and crosses here to go further up by the Sea of Galilee and then on to Damascus. So this is that main route. In between, you have this valley, and you can see that it's leveled out, and it is really the breadbasket for Israel. This is where they grow the majority of their crops, and it's all well watered and irrigated now, which is one reason why the Kishon River today doesn't even look like a muddy creek. You can't even see it other than because there's moisture that flows there. You see this sort of ribbon of green running through the valley, and that's where the Kishon is. And in the rainy season, sometimes you'll have flash floods there. But this isn't the rainy season, but they're going to have a flash flood because God is going to intervene. So here up to the top left, you have Mount Carmel. This is that whole ridge that runs just to the left of this highway, uh, runs all the way down. And so it's not really one mountain. It's like Mount of Olives. It's really a ridge, the Carmel Ridge. And then across is where you have Mount Tavor. And then just south of Mount Tavor is Endor, which is where the Witch of Endor was. And then here you have uh, Mount Moriah which is where Gideon is going to fight the Midianites. And then just south of that, in a straight line south, is the Herod Valley. And right here is where you have Herod Springs, which is where Gideon thinned out the 5,000. And, and today when you go there, just a small little pool that uh, one person might be able to get their feet wet. But I've got pictures that we'll see when we get to Gideon from 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Uh, where it was a huge, huge area, a huge spring, but now so min much of that spring water is is taken off for irrigation that, that you don't really see um, water on the land. So this is Harasheth Hagoyim down here uh, by the Megiddo Pass, and so the Canaanites come, and you, that's the yellow line here, Sisera, and they attack across the Jezreel Valley, where they have great maneuverability for their, for their chariot corps, and they are going to be met by uh, the force of, of um, Barak and, of course, by the force of God. A couple of other things you might know. You have the Herod Valley here. Down here is Beit Shan. Some of you have been to Beit Shan, and this is Mount Gilboa, and that's where uh, Saul was defeated by the Philistines and where Saul took his life. See how much of the Bible just takes place within the scope of that one map? And that's what's so great when you go to Israel and you stand up there on, on the Carmel Ridge at Mount Carmel and you look down and you just see everything. And you could just sit up there and tell Bible stories uh, day in and day out because so much happened just in that area. 
Well, here's another map, and you see again coming across from Harasheth Agoyim over here, past Megiddo, you see the main force of the Canaanites, and then the red dashed lines and arrows are their retreat. And what happens here is the Kishon River is coming down here, and what we learn is that there's God sends a flash flood that is going to wipe out the chariot courts. Really hard to drive chariots through mud. And so God takes a hand in it and wins the battle, of course. And so that's that's what we have here. The blue lines represent the uh, Israelite army and how they envelop the, the uh, chariots and just absolutely have a massacre. In the hymn that they write in Judges 5, uh, Deborah and Barak say, the kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. So you see in that map, here's Megiddo, and here are the waters of Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. Wait a minute. Did Sisera go into the heavens? No. So this means there is an angelic revolt uh, element to this whole battle. The fallen angels and the angels of God are engaged in fighting this battle as well. So we see that that when you have these fights, these wars going on on earth, that there is comparable warfare in the heavenlies. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. That would be the elect angels. The torrent of Kishon. None of us have seen that. It's a flash flood. The torrent of Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, O my soul, march on in strength. And now we come to the goat. Actually, it's an ibex. And that is the meaning of the name Yael. Yael is an ibex. And Yael is going to finish the job. In verse 18... After we have read that uh, Sisera had, uh, had fled on foot, now we pick up the scene with Sisera again. He had fled away on foot to the tent of Yael. And in verse 18, Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside. She's very hospitable, typical of Middle Easterners. Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So she uh, eases any suspicions he might have, and she does everything she can to make him comfortable. She covers him with a blanket, and then he says to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. Um, and so she opened a jug of milk. This is, uh, the word that is used for the milk could also be, it's a word that's used for cheese and some other things that are made from the milk, but it, it doesn't make sense that you'd be pouring cheese out of a jug. So it's milk here. She gave him a drink and she covered him. And he then uh, ordered her to stand watch, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there a man here? You shall say No. And so she is going to be standing guard and watching over him. But then once he falls asleep, then Yael, verse 21, Eber's wife, took a tent, tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him, and she drove the peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary so he died. And these are a couple of artist depictions of uh, this dramatic scene of her nailing Sisera to the ground. And this is uh, from the artist Artemisia uh, Gentileschi uh, in 1620, and you see her arm raised with the hammer. My gosh, that's a whole lot better than it looks on the, on the computer. Uh, she's got her hammer raised, and she is just going to drive it right through his skull. 
and this is a Gustave Dore uh, illustration. He did a lot of black and white illustrations for Bibles. And so this is a picture with Yael standing there holding the tent open so that Barak and his army can see that here lies the body of Sisera. So verse 22, and then as Barak, let me see, then as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And he didn't know what he was going to see. So he's probably a little bit mystified. And he goes into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Yabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And then we're told, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger. So when we studied about Hatzor, we studied about the two levels of destruction. Just because they defeated Yavin's army wasn't the end of Yavin because he wasn't there at the battlefield. And so it's going to take time before they finally rid the country of his uh, power and it, they grew stronger and stronger against Yavin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Yavin, king of, Caden, uh, of Canaan. And what this reminds us of is Romans eight thirty one and 32, where Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The battle is always the Lord's. It doesn't matter if the battle is with your emotions. It doesn't matter if the battle is with people. It doesn't matter if the battle is with the systems of the devil's world. The battle's always the Lord, and God will always have the victory. Sometimes believers die. They are casualties, but they're instantly promoted to heaven. And we wait for the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But God will always and ultimately win the victory. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this event tonight and to be reminded that you are in control even in the midst of all the crazy chaos that we see around us. And our responsibility is to trust in you, to rest in your promise to provide for us to fulfill the various obligations and mandates related to uh, living the Christian life and doing what we should do as part of our responsibility, but not violating the borders so that we are trying to do your job for you. And, uh, Father, unlike Barak, we need to be great warriors, giverim, uh, ready to stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith through the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.